If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited time offer, so act now. If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited-time offer, so act now. My name is Rob Gorski, and you're listening to the Autism Dad Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. You guys are awesome. I really appreciate it. Uh, I hope that you're doing okay. I know the world's still kind of burning a little bit uh, at this point in time. It's basically the 23rd of April, and uh, actually, as of today, I am officially fully vaccinated. So uh, I'm two weeks past my or, or two weeks from my second dose. I had the Moderna vaccine, so I feel really good. Um, I've been able to kind of get back to some semblance of life. Most of my family is vaccinated now. So, uh, I've been able to see my parents and I've not really seen my siblings yet, but that's, that's coming up soon. Uh, but it's been really cool to be able to kind of reconnect with people again and, and kind of reemerge, uh, from a kind of a rather stringent lockdown because my oldest is immunocompromised. But anyhow, uh, we're doing great. I hope you guys are doing the same. Uh, please, uh, remember to be smart, stay the course, you know, be safe in everything you're doing so that we can kind of put this whole thing to bed. Um, I have been wanting to do this particular episode for a really long time and just, it just never worked. There were scheduling conflicts. Uh, one of the times we had equipment failure. I mean, it was just a, just didn't work out. Um, but I have Dr. Emily Valor. She is a pediatric psychologist from the Cleveland clinics center for autism. And she's here today to just kind of talk to you about what autism is, kind of what to look for when you're a parent, maybe you have some concerns, and what the diagnostic process is like, what you can expect going forward, and just a lot of things that can help you navigate a situation that can be really scary when you first get started. So I'm really excited about this. This was a great conversation. I hope, I really hope that it helps you guys. So yeah, stick around. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Thanks. 
We're back. And my guest today is Dr. Emily Valor. She is a pediatric psychologist at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Cleveland Clinic Children's Center for Autism. It's kind of a mouthful. I always, I always get that mixed up. A big mouthful. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. Is there an acronym? CCCA? Uh, I mean, CCCHRCOA, but that's even more of a mouthful. That is more so. of a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, it, anyway, we're here to, <laughs> to have a conversation about autism because it's like autism awareness month. What my hope is, is that we can kind of address some of the, the, the questions that a lot of parents run into. Cause I remember like I went through the diagnosis process three times cause all three of my kids were diagnosed and I was like at the time back then, I think we were still like one in 15,000 or something like that at, at the time. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't very common. There was still a lot of stigma attached to it and there were no, no one was talking about it. Um, parents weren't talking about it. It was still kind of one of those, like I've heard of it, but I've seen Rain Man. So that's kind of what people's reference was. So mm-hmm. my, my hope is that we can just kind of uh, provide some, some insight and some guidance to, to kind of help you navigate uh, this journey if, if you're on it. And maybe mm-hmm. you learn something that helps you be a little more empathetic and kind uh, to someone else in your life who might be going through something similar. So thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me. And, you know, I'd love to do nothing more than share with our families what this process actually looks like. I know it's one that's often filled with a lot of uncertainty. Um, and then when you actually get here and get to our office, can actually be a very natural um, conversation and interaction. It's not scary. It's more play-based. Um, we're not the medical doctors that do things with shots and medicine. We're the ones that get to, to play and ask questions and get to know people in and out. Um, so I'm happy to dispel that, that scary process for, for families and talk more about it. Yeah. They, they, uh, I think that was one of the big differences when my, when my kids were diagnosed, they were, they were run through Akron children's at mm-hmm. the time they were, they were really nervous about going cause they had this thing with doctors, right? Like they just, they, well, they generalize everything. So they went to their doctor, they got a shot. And so that means they go here, they're going to get a shot. And it was like, it was, it was like play-based and they just got to play and there was a lot of observation. And they asked, you know, the parents, we, we were asked like a, a million questions and, and I wasn't, I was scared going into it, but I, I wasn't, I guess I didn't feel, I felt very comforted once we actually got into the process. It's, it's, it's that kind of unknown uh, mm-hmm. thing. Well, before we jump into that, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do? Sure. Uh, so you introduced me. My name is Emily Valor. I am a child clinical psychologist or pediatric psychologist that works for the Cleveland Clinic Children's Center for Autism. Um, my primary role here at the clinic is to guide families through the initial evaluation process if there's suspected concerns for autism, um, but also do reevaluations, consult as needed. And our program is very much growing. So we're hoping that we'll be able to, that I'll be able to do some things with individual and family services moving forward as well. And our clinic extends much, much further beyond me. We have a school specialized for children with autism, different kinds of therapies, behavior-based speech, occupational, and all that jazz as well. So there's many different facets to, to our program here at the clinic, and I'm happy to be speaking on behalf of all of those today. Well, I'm a huge fan of the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, 
I've been writing about our experience for like, God, it's 11, almost 12 years now, I think. Mm-hmm. And we spent so much time at the Cleveland Clinic over the years. And we have, if you've never been to the Cleveland Clinic, like it's, it's one of the most amazing facilities you can be at. And they have always done so well by us. And, and I think I was telling you earlier, like the Cleveland, before we started recording, the Cleveland Clinic is, is one of the main reasons that Gavin is still alive. He has all kinds of serious health issues and he spent a lot of time uh, with you guys and we're very grateful for everything that you guys do. So thank you very much for, for all of that. I guess it would be helpful to start off by just kind of talking about what autism is, like just kind of break it down so that people can better understand exactly. I mean, it's not easy to break down, but you know, can, can you just sort of explain kind of what it is to people who don't know? Absolutely. Yeah. I'll give you my spiel that I give to all families whenever we're talking about diagnosis. Um, so autism or autism spectrum disorder is the, the overarching umbrella term, um, that is used nowadays. It is, to put it quite simply, a difference in neurodevelopment. Um, That difference results in in delays or, again, differences in social communication, social skills, and the presence of some behaviors that wouldn't typically be part of our development. Um, I always like to tag on to a conversation about autism about what it is not, and it is certainly not an, an illness or a sickness. It's nothing that you know needs curing. It is just a different way that children see the world, perceive things, interact with people and, and objects in their environment around them. And that's well, that's a really good point because I remember when my oldest was diagnosed in, back in 2005, I, like, I really didn't know anything about autism at the time. Like I'd, I'd seen Rain Man and that was my understanding. And one of the scariest parts for me was that like, I didn't know what it meant. Like, I didn't know how it was going to impact his life. I didn't know what it meant for us as a family. I didn't know, you know, you have all of these like plans laid out as, as far as like what you're going to do and something like this comes up and then you, you don't have any idea. Like, what does this change? What does it mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is, is it something that needs to be fixed or uh, treated or, I mean, like you just, you just don't know. Um, mm-hmm. What causes autism? That's a great question, and it's one that a lot of people are looking into and one we really have a lot of question marks still about. So for a great deal of children, individuals who are autistic, we we don't have the underlying answer, and we view it just as, you know, an individual difference, part of diversity, right, neurodiversity. There are, for some children, we can identify genetic differences um, or genetic syndromes that are the primary uh motivator for autism or the reason that uh, autism is presenting. Um, But for a lot of individuals who get diagnosed, we just simply know it's a different way in developing. So so I guess, I guess what causes it is probably not (laughs) the best way to word it. Um, Sure. I, I, one of the things like as a parent that I wanted, I felt like I needed to understand what happened in Mm -hmm. order to understand what he was going through and what we were up against, you know? And since then, I mean, I, I think, I mean, genetically, I think it's genetic, right? There's, there's a genetic tie to it and it's just sort of who they are. It's just like, I am who I am. It doesn't mean that exactly. I have something. It just means I am who I am and they are who yep. they are. And, and it is a different way of 
seeing the world, which is amazing the way they see my world, the world. Kids are, kids are so cool the way they see things. I haven't seen if there are new statistics released yet. How are, are there new statistics for autism released? In yet? terms of the prevalence rates? Yeah. It's still the, the CDC is putting it around one in 54 children. Okay. Um, they really don't have the, the stats pegged down on adults, um, older individuals who end up with a diagnosis, but for children, we're, we're hovering around one in 54 as our, tools get more sensitive and, and, you know, specific as we get better at detecting lesser impacted individuals. Um, that's why our prevalence rates seem to, to be increasing compared to when you said your, your sons went through the process. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, is it, is, is the prevalence actually increasing or are we just becoming better at identifying it? Correct. The latter. Okay. We, most research indicates that our tools are just getting better at detecting it. Um, and especially those kiddos that have more subtle differences or who may get diagnosed a little bit later in life, we, we now have greater um, specificity and sensitivity are the scientific words we use to determine who has autism versus who doesn't or detecting if there's other things going on that are potentially presenting like autism features, but are really related to other medical or situational or mental health uh, related conditions. How does autism impact a person? It's a great question and a loaded question. Um, and I, I think I always like to start off answering these questions by saying, you know, I can speak from my experience as a provider who's working with families and individuals who are autistic, but I can never fully speak to the autistic experience. Um, it's not one that I have. Um, but in my, my understanding and having conversations with people, you know, this is part of identity. Just like you said, it's um, the autism spectrum is part of the larger human spectrum, right? We all have uh, different traits and personalities and um autism is one that you know it, it's it's how individuals live it's their identity it's how they see things how they interact with people and their environment around them so it really does it colors all experiences just the same that any experience you and i would have um or the parts that make up our identities impact how we move through the world and everybody's unique just like yeah. everyone else is unique and one of the one of the frustrating things that I found over the last decade of trying to like raise awareness and prepare the world for my kids and my kids for the world is that because autism falls under this umbrella, it's like an umbrella term, right? So people, mm -hmm. they think like, Oh, well, if you're diabetic, you're diabetic. They understand what that means. If you right. are left-handed, they know you're left-handed, but if you're autistic, there's a whole plethora of differences between one person to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And so it, it's hard, I think, for people to wrap their heads around how someone with the same diagnosis can have so many different unique strengths and weaknesses and likes and dislikes and personality traits and all that kind of stuff. Because my kids, all three are diagnosed on a spectrum. My oldest is, they're, they're all, they're just all very different. Sure. So I actually missed, I didn't pick up on the traits of my two youngest because I had assumed autism was what my oldest was having or, or what my oldest was dealing with. And, and so I missed the more subtle things until I recognized that it's not a cookie cutter thing. Like everybody is different. Everybody's unique. Just like every other human being is different and unique and, and exactly. autism is no different. 
Yeah, you meet one autistic individual, you've met one autistic individual. I always like to say I've never seen the same autism twice. Not every kid that walks into my office is the same. There's so many different, um, you know, ways that this manifests, just the same as you said, as we all present differently day to day. Are there different forms or degrees of autism or people like with my youngest two, they're very, very, I guess they refer to as high functioning, which I've never really, I guess I really not like that. Um, and then they, I, I now talk to other parents who are diagnosed or getting kids diagnosed now. And they talk about levels, which I yep. didn't deal with when I was going through that. So I don't really have an understanding of what that means. Uh, but are there, are there some people who are more profoundly impacted than others? Sure. Yeah. So a lot of this conversation is a matter of semantics and, you know, language and the language we use evolves over time, right? It evolves, you know, within our, our socio-political and diversity climates. And so I think part of that has been, you know, how our language has evolved to talk about autism as well. Um, as I started talking about autism spectrum disorder is kind of the, the label or quote unquote label that we use now. Previously, you know, Asperger's syndrome, pervasive developmental disorder, autistic disorder, there were all these different words uh, and diagnoses that were meant to capture people that looked differently, right? Um, Because autism can manifest so many different ways. Um, They've all, all those terms have been condensed under that umbrella of autism spectrum disorder now. And whenever we talk about severity, that's changed as well. So just like you said, people use high functioning, low functioning. Some people, even autistic individuals, will continue to use those terms if it makes sense to them. Um, As a field, we've come to the conclusion that it's a little bit of a misnomer because, you know, a quote unquote high functioning uh, individual on their on a bad day, it doesn't necessarily feel or look high functioning. And so it, it's it's hard to capture it with those terms. So how we've started talking about severity is in how much support, yes, the level of support that we give an individual. And that ranges from a level one of needing support to a level three of needing very substantial support. Um, There's a level two in the middle there. And that is the part of the the diagnosis that changes over time. Um, So while it's very unusual that an individual gets a diagnosis of autism and that is taken away, it is very common that an individual may have a a level and then decrease in level as they get response to intervention um, or show, uh, you know, closing the gap between delays with their peers and where they are. It's also very common that individuals may increase in the level of support they need at a given period of time during big transition time periods in their life or as social demands get harder. So that is the fluid part of the diagnosis that parents will see over time. Those different levels shift. And this just because I'm curious myself when, when parents and I hear parents tell me this all the time and it, it, I'm not sure how to react to it. They'll say like, Oh, my son was autistic, but I changed his diet and now he's not. And I, I like, I, I never know quite what to say to that because is there a lot of misdiagnoses that go on that maybe are underlying health conditions that could be treated with a dietary change or something like that? Um, so the dietary change specifically unsure what underlying medical conditions would cause kind of autism-like features, Mm -hmm. but I I have heard that feedback from parents before, right? Um, They've they've gotten interventions and supports, and now 
they no longer seem to meet criteria. Um, and typically at that point, I have a conversation with parents. Um, it's very common if intervention is done and done correctly and meets the needs of a child that we see tremendous growth, right? And it, it is likely that that child may then go down and how much support or their level of support that they need. But it is very unusual if the diagnosis was appropriately given to begin with that we take it away. More than likely, it's just that um, individuals have learned to compensate for some areas of difficulty and we may just need to provide, you know, continued maintenance or, um, you know, a different kind of support moving forward, but that if we stripped away all of services entirely, they, they may still struggle with some of those differences, you see. Mm -hmm. And a re really good analogy for that is uh, my kids were in a public school system. They were each in there for like one year kindergarten usually. And then we got them into, uh, there's a charter school called summit Academy all over Northeast Ohio. And, mm -hmm. and my kids have been there ever since they needed IEPs initially, but because the school had so many things built into their daily curriculum, they no longer require IEPs. Does it mean mm -hmm. that they're not autistic anymore? It just means that they have, uh, they have the supports in place for right. them to navigate their world in a more effective, uh, efficient way, or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, maybe a little bit easier for them or whatever. But if you were to take them out of that environment and stick them into the public school system, it would be, I, I think, and my kids are, my kids are brilliant, but, and I, and I love them. If you're listening, I love you guys, but it's a, it's an entirely different environment. Like the emotional demand and mm -hmm. sensory things and all those types of things that are, that are looked after or, or, or taken into account in a school designed specifically for these, these kids. Yep. Uh, it, it's a whole different yep. thing. So yeah, I, I, I understand exactly. Absolutely. And it's akin to health maintenance, right? Yeah. You know, if you take a medication to treat your, again, or insulin to treat your diabetes and you get to a good stable medical place um, and you're no longer showing those symptoms day to day, does it no longer mean again that you're diabetic? As soon as you remove those supports, we would, we would see the presentation of some of those things, but you've probably also learned skills along the way to alter your lifestyle or to, you know, decrease the severity of the impact of and so you're, okay. you're managing and you, you find a way to coexist with the world in right. the best way you possibly can. And yeah. Does autism impact boys and girls equally and are they impacted the same way or differently? That's a great question. Thank you. So the, <laughs> the statistics will <laughs> tell you, the statistics will tell you that boys are, are more impacted simply because boys are diagnosed more frequently or at a higher rate than girls. Um, and the, you know, the jury is still out. The research is still out. There's a lot of people looking at sex differences in, um, boys versus girls, but it's often that autism just presents a little differently in girls. Um, and you may have talked on your show before about the idea of masking or camouflaging that we can see, uh, in girls, especially girls that are not as impacted, um, there are certain things like eye contact is, is a sex difference. We see to be stronger in girls necessarily than in boys or, you know, a high degree of creativity and play is still there. Um, uh, and again, this is not every 
girl with autism, but some of the other things is, is they may get really good at uh, avoiding or hiding when things are difficult or internalizing some of those things that are challenging and then fly under the radar. So there are definite sex differences between um, girls and boys. And that's something that as clinicians, as providers, we need to be mindful about because there might just be more nuanced expressions to the difficulties that they're experiencing that require a little more uh, digging or talking to other people and, and working with them, that kiddo uh, to really get a holistic picture. Because we know that not only are boys diagnosed more frequently, girls are also diagnosed at a, at a later time frame than boys. And so we're missing key um, windows for intervention if we're we're not looking carefully enough and or not realizing that there are differences in how autism manifests. Uh, one of the most common questions that I get from parents is about the early signs and symptoms of autism. Can we talk a little bit about what those signs are? What types of things parents should just write off as like, oh, well, he's just walking a little bit later or oh, he's just not talking yet kind of stuff versus, sure. you know what, there's some major milestones that are missed. We need to get just to make sure everything is is okay kind of thing. Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's not a one size fits all. There's always, you know, rooms and windows for, you know, if they're not crawling or walking at this, at this month or this age, should we be concerned? It's very contextual, right? We need to understand the, the whole child's picture, uh, medical history, everything going on to really know if we should be concerned. Um, but there are general markers for social communication uh, milestones, just as there are markers for speech milestones, our motor milestones, like crawl and walk and that kind of stuff, and toileting milestones for kids. And so when we're looking and exploring autism, uh, our social communication milestones is ones we're going to look really close at to see have we met them or are they delayed? Are they inconsistently presenting across people and settings? Um, we know as a field now and with our tools that we'll actually see differences for, for kiddos, particularly kiddos who are more impacted with autism, even within that first year, year and a half of life. Um, so some of our very early social communication milestones that come out in that first year, uh, things like eye contact that comes out, you know, starting five weeks up to a couple months old. That's one of our very first things that we, we do to connect with our parents is we make eye contact. Um, other early things, kids smiling back at their parents, smiling at people, responding to their name and knowing their name, um, being able to start drawing our parents' attention onto things in the environment that we like. Um, those are all things just in that first year that the gross majority of little ones are doing. Um, so if by around one, your child isn't starting to do some of those things, that might be an indication we want to follow up with the pediatrician. Um, and then, you know, we can talk further, but then there's certain ones between one and two that we'll want to track and, and do that same thing. But, you know, as far as when to take alarm, I always try to tell parents to to not panic initially, to just take note of it, you know, see how often it's happening. If it's happening a lot, um, go to your pediatrician first and they have screeners to, to determine if this is something that we need to evaluate further or if it's something that, you know, we want to just kind of wait and, and see we're not too concerned about or it's not outside of the window of what we might see skill attainment um, happen in. So. 
And so if parents are concerned at any point, talking to their pediatrician would be the first step along the way. Correct. Yes. Um, we have, as a field, everybody's knowledge of, of developmental differences is growing. And so it is a pretty common practice now for pediatricians during your child's regularly scheduled wellness visits early on in life to give autism screeners, developmental screeners, really all areas of development to families. So they're also tracking some of these things. Should you not happen to, to know that it's delayed or not have concerns, they're also monitoring these things as well. And so first step, always go to that pediatrician, share your concerns, have a discussion about it, and they'll kind of guide you in the direction of further evaluation um, if they think it's necessary. When, when a child is referred, mm -hmm. who are they referred to? Because I, some people have, like we went to a developmental pediatrician was mm -hmm. where we were at. And then when a parent is referred, generally speaking, because everybody's different, are, are they referred to a developmental pediatrician? So it's going to depend. Um, it's really dependent upon the resources and personnel in your community. Um at your medical center. So developmental pediatricians are wonderful human beings. For anybody that doesn't know what one is, um, they're a pediatrician that has specialized expertise in developmental differences and disorders. Um, they, they essentially monitor when development deviates a little bit, they'll track that. Um, but they're a pretty rare breed. Uh, it's, it's a field where we don't have a ton of people um, here in the clinic, we only have three of them and you know, two of them have just joined this year. So it's growing. Um, so sometimes that's not an available resource and instead families will get referred to most commonly psychologists with specialized experience in autism like myself. Um, sometimes neurologists or neuropsychologists, depending on that specific provider's background. There's more than who is doing it is the training of the person doing it. There are certain measures and play-based assessments. Um, you want a particular kind of training in your provider. And so regardless of what kind of provider it is, they all have that similar underlying training uh, in the measures that are needed to detect autism. How long does it take to go through the diagnosis process? And are, and are you guys still like, there wasn't much of a wait when we went through because it was, it feels like a lifetime ago. Um, but I know a lot of people right now will say like they've been on a waiting list for like six months. Is that, is that due to a, like a lack of resources? Like just not enough people to meet the demand? It, it really depends. Um, it is, it is one of the things that I hate hearing the most is how much families get bounced around before they're, they're put into the, to the right wait list or, you know, how long these wait lists are. It is dependent on so many factors. Um, you know, where you're located, if you're in an urban area, uh, you're probably going to have a quicker pathway into an evaluation. Um, and, and there's more people doing those evaluations, right? Um, Waitlist can really range from getting in in a couple of weeks to there are some families that end up, you know, waiting a year to two years, um, depending on resources of the actual clinic, how many people providers there are and how many slots that they have. Uh, unfortunately, in, insurance ends up still playing a large role in who can get served where, um, which is just an unfortunate 
health inequity, really, uh, at the end of the day. Um, but it, it's it's a system we all kind of have to work through. And so that's another big player. Um, and then just the sheer number of kiddos. We you know we talked about the the prevalence rate being about one in fifty four. That's how many have a diagnosis. There are plenty of kids that come through that don't end up having that diagnosis, and we see them too. Um, so those are just some of the very many parts that result in that backlog to even get into the office where you then start the formal evaluation. How long does a formal evaluation normally take? Is it different from kid to kid or? Yeah, definitely from kid to kid and provider to provider. I would say um, it's always going to go quicker with little ones for the most part compared, you know, an 18 month old going through an evaluation and an 18 year old going through an evaluation. Mm -hmm. They just have a lot different amount of history we have to get through um, and how long it takes to get through the actual assessments. But I'd say, you know, on average, it could take anywhere from it's a window, uh, you know, three to four hours to maybe six hours, depending on the needs of the child, um, what other things might be looked at in addition to autism specific symptomology, uh, whether it be cognitive assessments, academic achievement, mental health, comorbidities, things like that. Um, and, you know, we got to do the interview with parents and go through the feedback all in those that time period. Um, it may be broken up over a couple of weeks. It may all be in the same long day. Uh, so that looks different, but it is most definitely longer than the typical doctor's visit. And so we always tell families to prepare themselves, their child for that process, because we do spend quite a bit of time with the families before we arrive on a diagnosis or lack thereof a diagnosis. Once a parent, once their child receives an official diagnosis of autism, what does that do? Does that, I mean, it doesn't fundamentally change anything. It's still the same kid, but mm-hmm. is it, is it more of, we know how to better help them succeed kind of thing and then open doors for services and, and stuff like that? All of the above. It is, it is knowledge. Um, you know, every ounce that we want that child individual with autism to kind of join us where we're at in our world and meet these quote unquote normative standards, we want to be able to meet them where they are and better understand how we can interact and see the world through their eyes. And so first and foremost, it's information um, about how children with autism see the world. And secondly, it's the gateway to services um, most of the time. And that opens up the doors for schools, for therapeutic services, um, to be able to get the right ones um, and get a good match between you and the therapist, the child's family and the therapist. Um, Diagnosis can often feel really overwhelming in my feedback from families. I'm sure you can speak better to me (laughs) than me on that front. Um, And so quite honestly, at least myself, once the words exit my mouth, I always say, you know, I have a lot more I want to get through, but I want to pause and see, you know, what's going through your mind. Is it yep. surprising? Is it shocking? Is it makes sense? And really just create space to to talk about it and digest it before we launch into the million other to do's that, that I think parents are going to see in their mind. Yeah. Cause when I remember when I first heard autism, like it was just like, like I didn't hear anything else after that. Exactly. So it's like, I always tell parents, like you, you hear it and your initial response is panic. Cause 
maybe you don't know what it is. And so you're thinking like worst case scenario, it's like, just, you got to just stop and breathe and, Mm -hmm. and just kind of collect yourself so that you can learn as much as you possibly can so that you can be the best uh, parent to your child, because it's going to require a lot of changes from the parents. You know, you're going to have to do things differently, or you may have to do things differently and be more aware of certain things. And I mean, I live, it's like a sensory nightmare in my house and my kids, that's the biggest challenge for us is sensory stuff. I, so the sooner you, you know, educate yourself, I think the better. Uh, you yeah. And I think every parent comes in with their own thoughts. They come in with their own education or knowledge base about autism. There, some parents come in with their own kind of conclusions already drawn about diagnosis. Um, and so it's really important to just take the time to, talk through all of that again, transparently and, you know, collaborate on ways we're now going to best meet the needs of the child and move forward. Um, Cause diagnosis at the end of the day, we've talked about stigma. It's, it's words, right? It is a label to, to categorize what we're seeing, but the most important thing is, is what comes next is getting them connected with all of those supports. Um, and there is no right or wrong way to navigate that process because it's a lot it requires a lot of coordination and see, we just got to take things one step at a time, one therapy at a time. Never give up and don't lose hope. Yep. My, my youngest, uh, Mr. Emmett, uh, he was, he was diagnosed as non, well, they call it preverable because he made, he, he used to, he used to talk in tones and it was like this beautiful music. Like it just was like really smooth and it just whatever, but he didn't use words. And, you know, we were advised that, you know, there's a good chance he may never, he just may never get language. It's just, he was already four years old or something. And, uh, one day he just started talking, you know, we, we learned sign language and all that stuff to help him communicate and be able to communicate with him. So we could establish some path of, you know, communication going forward. Um, and then one day he just did what, you know, we were told he might not be able to do. And, and so, like we never, you never give up on your kids and, and you just keep pushing because they will, they will always surprise you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about early intervention. Yep. We know that that's vital to success and helping them to uh, become better adapted to the world or how, however you want to word that. What exactly is early intervention? Like what does that entail? Sure. So early intervention is actually a program, um, many people might not know that, that uh, is run federally, um, that's accessible for kids birth to the age of three. Um, That simply means we're getting intensive therapy supports for families and the child themselves as early as conceivably possible. And so early intervention can actually occur even before a diagnosis of, of autism or global developmental delay, anything even happens. It, it can be applied when there's delays solely in speech and motor skills um, and some of our self-help skills, or if there's medical needs, um, it really boils down to just giving therapeutic services and supports within the really early time period in life. And we can dodge this question if you'd like, but I do want to, I do want to ask it, uh, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I'm just giving, it's, it's another loaded one. 
Um, ABA therapy is one of the most common forms of uh, therapy for kids. It's been very beneficial. It's also very, very controversial. Can you explain what ABA therapy is and like, why is it so beneficial to kids or why, why does it seem to help so much? Absolutely. And again, I can answer it from my experience as a professional, but certainly not from the experience of an right. autistic individual. Um, and ABA has, has been something that has definitely evolved again with, with the times similar in how we, we talk about and perceive autism. Um, simply put, ABA or applied behavior analysis is the science of behavior and it works to break down behavior into all its parts, what happens before the behavior, the behavior itself, and how we respond to the behavior with the idea of increasing good things that we want to see, skills that we want to improve, and decreasing anything that could be potentially problematic or harmful, um, quote unquote, less adaptive for a child. And so these things we, we might see helpful uh, or improve in ABA could be things like engagement, um, flexibility and in behavior and ways of thinking, independent life skills, uh, decreasing potentially self-harm or self-injury. Um, those, those are critical skills, especially for individuals with autism who are more so impacted. Um, that specific kind of therapy can help families work through. Um, and the way ABA therapists approach um, this kind of therapy, as I said, has changed. I'm not an ABA therapist myself, and I can't speak for all of them, but a really big goal now is I'm helping teach the skills, but also helping practice generalized skills, right, to different situations, new settings, new people, as naturally as possible to mimic the skills that we would all just typically get through social learning processes, but that needs to be a little more concretely um, provided to, to individuals with autism. Are there other types of therapies that are beneficial? Sure. Yeah, there's tons. It really depends on the child's age, language uh, needs. Um, you know, a lot of the allied services we work with a lot are speech and language therapy um, for kind of obvious purposes, but to increase meaningful communication is the goal. Uh, occupational therapy is one that helps with our fine motor skills as well as self-help skills and sensory processing uh, integration. Um, physical therapy, we can see a lot of difficulties with coordination uh, in autistic individuals. And so uh, that might be something we tack on. And then kind of integrating the mental health side of things, um, social skills, groups and interventions and training, it, cognitive behavioral therapy, individual mental health counseling, because we know autistic individuals are more likely to have anxiety, depression, other kind of co-occurring things. And so those, all of those therapeutic outlets are ones that we may recommend depending on the age and the specific needs of an individual. What can parents expect like when their child is diagnosed with autism and they're like, I don't know, flash forwarding to the rest of their lives, or whatever is, I think it's sort of important that, that parents understand that it's not a, it's not a death sentence because that seems to be kind of what a lot of people kind of feel like it is at times, mm -hmm. but it's, is it so life altering that 
their life is never going to be what they thought it was. Cause there's like a grieving process that parents go through. Like, like, and, and I found like helping parents to, to overcome that and embrace the, what is instead of what they wanted it to be or what they thought it was going to be is, is a, is a positive way of helping them to kind of reframe everything and, and maybe adapt to the, the kind of change in the course of, you know, their life that they thought they were going to be going down. Is that, does that make any sense? Absolutely. And I think that that is what, at least I, I can't speak for every provider, but trying to do is, is reframe um, those feelings about the future. And as much as I can, uh, you know, work towards accepting those unknowns and the uncertainty that's still going to come with the future. There's so many times where families will ask tough questions, you know, will my child talk if they're pre-verbal or non-verbal, you know, will they live independently? And for especially really early on little ones, I wish we had that crystal ball, but it's hard to tell, right? It, it's it's often a picture that becomes clearer once we get intervention, once individuals age. Um, and I think it's a, it's a long process to, to work towards that acceptance and being able to tolerate that. But it, you know, you can speak for yourself. It's definitely a very doable one. And mm-hmm. once I always recommend to families, you know, seek support. Like this isn't just about your child. This is about the family and um, your, your mental health, your well-being, how you react, like is such an important piece of, of this moving forward. And so to ask for assistance or support from your family, from organizations that, you know, are, are made to work with this population from your mental health, your therapeutic team, um, as much as possible to, to take some of that burden off of you, off of parents. That was, that was a perfect answer because I was just going to ask you, it's, you know, we know it's so important for parents to build a support system like very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, are there resources available for parents um, as they try to navigate this type of thing? Sure. And, you know, again, that's going to be very dependent on where you live and, um, right. you know, your own individual communities. There are systems that are, are there to help you um, on multiple levels. Um, so your pediatric team, your doctors, your therapists, they're all going to be one support system that you'll you'll work towards creating a team with. Um, there's your school system where your child spends most of their days, right? Uh, you're going to want to communicate closely with them, the educators, the administration for IEP purposes, things like that. They'll be a person that can provide you supports. Um, there's funding supports because, you know, caring for an individual developmental differences can not always, but can be something your, your eyes right now. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah. I, I, I know where you're going with that. It takes a lot of time, <laughs> money, resources, stress. Um, and so regardless of, of an individual's insurance, even if you have insurance, we recommend families look to what are some some financial resources, right? Whether they be, you know, doing early intervention with your kids under three, or um, looking to see if there's an Ohio scholarship or Ohio Autism Scholarship Program, because I'm yep. here in Ohio. But if your state has one like that, um, you know, looking into Social Security benefits, right? Mm-hmm. There are definitely financial resources available to help offset the costs of some of these therapies and burden. 
Um, and then there's creating networks of other families and, you know, educators, professionals here in Ohio, you're probably familiar with milestones there. <laughs> yeah, they're a great one. Um, they have lots of, they have conferences, they have care coordinators that will help families get connected with the right services and supports that work with their insurance and where they live. Um, they have parents support groups. That's just one statewide one. Your state probably has one. There's the national ones um, that are well-known, um, the, you know, the autism speaks to have response teams where you can call in and look for a certain service. Um, there's, you know, if you're looking for safety supports, the national autism association has a big safety, what is it called? Big red safety kit that they can help get families access towards. Um, there are lots of things out there. If you're, you know, a really savvy parent and want to learn all about the research, the National Autism Center has the standards of what are evidence-based practices, and you can learn more about it that way. There is a wealth of information. There's also a wealth of di a disinformation. I don't know yeah. what the right word for that is. Not Bad information. <laughs> information, things that aren't helpful. So it's making sure to be a you know, good consumer of what you're reading. Talk to the people that are experts in their fields that are the people the therapists, the doctors, the educators who, who work with this population to get your most up-to-date info moving forward. How important is self-care for the parents? Should I turn that question back on you? <laughs> well, I, I, like I, I harp on that all the time and, and, and it's self-care is like so important. It really <laughs> is. And so, yeah, I'll turn the question around on me. Yeah. Self-care <laughs> is super important because like everybody feels like we have to give our kids a hundred percent of ourselves all the time. And it's just not possible, at least not long-term. And so eventually you find yourself emotionally and physically bankrupt, depressed. Um, your health can suffer. I mean, there's all kinds of bad things that happen when you don't take care of yourself and putting yourself first allows you to give your kids the best version of who you are, because that's who they need. They don't, they don't need a person who can just give them everything all the time for a short period of time. And then, and then you're spent. Right. So, um, my therapist, cause therapy, I think is super important has said, told me one time that you have to be selfish before you can be selfless. And I thought, well, that's a really profound thing. And, and it's kind of better than the kind of cliche, like put your mask on first thing. But like I was, I was a medic for a long time and, and it was the same thing. Like my priority in the moment was my safety and my partner's safety, because otherwise you have additional patients you know? Yeah. And so then if you can't be there for yourself and your partner, then you can't be there for the person who needs you. And so mm -hmm. self-care is super, super important. I just wanted to throw that in there. Absolutely. Agree with all of that and thank, more. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I really appreciate your time. I've, I don't know, I, I've been looking forward to talking to you guys because I, I have so much respect for, for the Cleveland Clinic in general. And uh, you guys are always one of my go-to resources for anything, science and medicine and whatever. So I'm super stoked you guys came on the show. I guess my last question would be, is there like one piece of advice that you would offer parents who are maybe either going through the evaluation or, or about to go through the evaluation or maybe suspect something's wrong, but they might have people in their lives that are saying, oh, they're fine kind of thing. Like, sure. oh, they'll all grow it or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I would say, again, there is no, you know, right or wrong way to start going about this process. If you have concerns, 
anybody, you, somebody else in your family, the distant grandpa, the teacher, share them with your pediatrician, um, have a discussion about it. Try to be as open and forthcoming as, as you feel comfortable being. That information really helps us get a clear picture. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk to you and let you know if we need to go further with anything. And take it day by day, right? We're going, everyone is going through a lot collectively in the world nowadays. But if you have, you know, the added stress and delight of, you know, parenting a child with developmental differences, it can, it can, it's just an, an added stressor, right, on top of everything else. And so take it one step at a time. Um, and like you said to your last point, you know, you can't serve from an empty vessel. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to model good regulation, coping strategies, advocacy for your child. Um, and, you know, rely on the people, lean on the people that you have in your life and your therapeutic medical team as much as you can. That was perfect. That was very, very good. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ramble. I'm like, no, oh, it's good. It's good. It's good. I think it, well, it's, it's very relatable and you're right <laughs> about everything you said. And, and, um, yeah, so I, I really appreciate that. Uh, if someone's interested in, in looking to the Cleveland clinic for help, um, is they just go to, clevelandclinic.org or what? Yeah. So you, our center for autism has a wonderful website. Um, you can go there for more information about some of our services. Be mindful that in light of COVID things look a little different sometimes. So be patient with us. If one of the services you're looking for is, is not currently being offered, but you know, if you're looking for information about the school or evaluations or different therapies, go on there, give us a call to learn more. Um, and there's wonderful organizations that are outside of the, the clinic as well. We can't obviously endorse all of them, but you know, there are definite resources available in the communities, um, Cleveland, Ohio, greater nationally. So look into them. Ask your, your pediatrician for more information too. The Autism Society, and I, I know you can't endorse, but like the Autism Society does really good, like grassroots stuff, like helping individual families. So like they're a good resource if you're, if you're lost and you don't know what to do. But thank you. I really appreciate your time. And I, and I so recognize the Cleveland, <laughs> Cleveland Clinic, everything is, is like super, all the walls are white. And I know. Every, 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 every room is like that. And I know it serves a purpose. Uh, I can't been, be too distracting. The, 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 yeah, it was the. I try to make up for it by all the fun toys and things. Around, but <laughs> I saw that it broke it up nicely. Fully, can't have everything because you know, COVID and cleaning and, yeah. and all of that. All the COVID stuff, yeah. All this stuff, Lots but I appreciate you you having me. You know, it's it's easy for me to talk about some of these things, but you know. And talk about my experiences with families, but you're you're the person living day in and day out, and so you're serving such a need for our families and to be someone that they can feel comfortable and learning from shared experiences. So, thank you. Appreciate what you're doing too. <laughs> and I, I just want to point out one of the things that I noticed when you spoke was just, and then I promise I'll let you go. Um, sure. You made it clear that you were speaking for yourself and that you don't know what autistic individuals actually go through firsthand. I think that's really important that we do that. And I, I just wanted to commend you on that because I noticed that I just thought that was really cool because it, it validates people's experiences and it's listening to what they have to say, because 
I mean, they're going to know what it's like to be autistic better than I know. I mean, I know my kids, but that's, I mean, the limit I'm on the outside looking in, right. I'm not on the inside. So I just thought that was really cool. And as a parent, I really appreciate that. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're all still, we're still learning. Right. And we have to always take the lead from the people, the the stakeholders in this conversation, which are autistic individuals. And Mm -hmm. even something like we go back to language all the time, as simple as, you know, you're going to put person first language an individual with autism or an autistic individual. It is very independently decided by that individual. Right. And so it's just really important to be mindful of how we talk about these things and, you know, I appreciate having discussions like this because it helps us all kind of get on a similar page and be open to, to listening and learning, which is so important. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I am 99% sure it's Friday, right? It's Friday. I, it'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll 15 minutes to, to end of Friday. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it all slurs together anymore. Have yeah. a great weekend. Stay safe. And again, I really, really appreciate your time. I appreciate yours. If you need anything, just reach out. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Before I close things out today, I just want to say thank you to Dr. Valor for not only coming on the show, but, but, uh, rescheduling to make it on here. Cause I I had some, uh, issues when we originally had this scheduled. So thank you for your patience and being willing to, to make this work. Uh, I've been wanting to do this for a really long time. It just didn't work out. Like I said, And I I really feel it's important that we have these kinds of discussions because when I was going through this diagnostic process with my oldest, which was, I don't know, 2005, so it's like 15 odd years ago, 16, 17 years ago, something like that. I don't know, like my brain is mush right now. And so math is just not my friend. So I'm just going to just, it's been a while, right? So uh, we, we didn't have this kind of information back then. And so we were kind of flying blind. We were totally flying blind, to be honest with you. And so it was overwhelming and scary. We didn't know what to do. We were kind of like feeling our way through the dark. And to be able to have something like the Cleveland Clinic Center for Autism provide you with guidance and information and you know science-based, medically sound, in your child's best interest kind of information is really, really important. And I, and I just, I wanted them to come on so that we could help introduce the process to parents because it can be really scary, especially if you're not familiar with it. So thank you very much for for coming on the show and educating us and answering questions and uh, just having a really good conversation about what parents can expect, what to look for, when to be concerned, when not to be concerned, you know, where to go when you need help, what kind of services are available afterwards. So I really, really appreciate it. Again, you guys can find her at theclevelandclinic.org. There'll be links in the show notes below. You can find me at theautismdad.com. All of my social links are at the top of the page. Uh, you can subscribe to any one of them. I really appreciate that. I'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe to this podcast on any one of your favorite podcast listening apps. I really don't have a preference. Just hit that button. I really appreciate it. If you haven't done so already, if you could please rate uh, the podcast, it really helps me to grow and kind of learn what I'm doing right and wrong. Uh, so it just takes a second and I, I would really appreciate that. I hope you guys have a great weekend. Stay safe, be smart, and I will talk to you guys next Friday. Thanks. Bye.
Autistic kids can sometimes struggle to learn new skills such as riding a bike, reading, or simply having a conversation to a high level of proficiency and automaticity. Brainiac is a brain enhancement program that gets to the root of the problem. It builds stronger brain and body connections that elevate learning capacity within four to six months. Brainiac cross-trains motor movement, visual, auditory, and cognitive thinking connections using fun, interactive video games. Strength and connections allow kids to learn new skills and perform them automatically with more confidence and greater independence. Brainiac is for homes and schools. Visit canoe.com, that's K-I-N-U-U dot com, and be sure to use the code THEAUTISMDAT at checkout to save $500. It's a limited time offer and it will expire on May 31st. 